Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks so much for joining this episode of the Modern Intimacy Podcast. I'm Dr. Kate Balistrieri, and today we're going to talk a little bit about consensual non-monogamy and the presence of narcissism in these relationships. I'm so excited to have with me today, Kate Larie. Kate is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamy kink, LGBTQ issues, and sex worker communities. She's the author of the book, Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. In addition to her master's degree in marriage and family therapy, Kate also has an MBA and is a registered art therapist. She is an EDSE certified sex educator and an EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model for the treatment of trauma. She's been practicing psychotherapy since 2003. Kate also co-hosts her own sex-positive podcast, Open Deeply, with Sunny Megatron, and has been featured in BuzzFeed videos. She's been a guest on Playboy Radio and many podcasts, including Sex with Dr. Jess, American Sex, Sluts and Scholars, and Multiamory. She's written for Authority Magazine and Good Vibrations and has been featured in Vice, Ms. Magazine, and is a frequent public speaker. Kate's private practice is in Encino, California. And for more information, you can check her out at Kate Laree, K-A-T-E-L-O-R-E-E.com. Kate, thank you so much for being here today and speaking with me about non-monogamy. I feel honored to be on your podcast. I think you're amazing. You're an amazing professional and you're putting such good content out into the world that's so important. Thank you. Yeah, th- these conversations are so important because in our culture, we have so many ideas about what is, but we often don't get a chance to talk about the core of what's going on inside some of these paradigms, especially for folks who want to maybe pursue something outside of the norm that they've been raised in, but they don't really know how to get started or they might have some fear. Mm-hmm. So I was reading a little bit in preparation for this podcast and was reading a statistic that showed about one in six people have a desire to engage in consensual non-monogamy and about one in nine people actually have. Isn't that Mm -hmm. interesting? I thought it would be higher than that. Yeah, I have heard higher statistics, but you know, I mean, there's different statistics out there. You know, I've, I've heard, you know, something like 20% of people have engaged in some kind of consensual Mm non-monogamy, you know? Uh, So it, it just depends on what stat you look at. It's one of those hard things that's hard to measure because so many people are in the closet. Very few people are as privileged as I am to be (laughs) completely out Mm -hmm. um, and talking freely about it. So you've been practicing non-monogamy for many years, correct? Yeah, I've been non-monogamous since 2003. So Mm -hmm. about the same time I started um, 
you know, I went back to school to get my master's in marriage and family therapy with a focus in art therapy in 2002. And then in 2003, that's when I began to be non-monogamous after an 11-year monogamous relationship. You know, I had an 11-year monogamous relationship, and after that, a 13-year non-monogamous relationship and marriage. And even after that ended, um, I've continued to identify as non-monogamous. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's I think, something that we're seeing um, more and more folks leaning toward, especially after the pandemic, when a lot of people were really hit with the realization that it's so difficult to get all of your needs met with one person and within the confines of one relationship. And I think sometimes the the distractions of life can keep people pretty unaware of that fact, but being so limited in the pandemic with what we could do really opened up some awareness for so many people. Would you agree or did you see something different? Yeah, um, there was a stat that went around and now I cannot find it, but the the main dating app that a lot of people use, Field, F-E-E-L-D, I think it's a, a play on playing the field probably, um, that is there for people that are either non-monogamous or kinky. Uh, there was a, a stat in an article that said that they had had something crazy, like 650% growth during the pandemic. It was oh. I can't remember exactly the stat, but it was insane. I and I wish I printed it out. Mm-hmm. Now I cannot find that article, but it was from a major magazine. That's um, fascinating. Yeah. I'll have to yeah. look for it. If, if if either of us can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Today specifically, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about narcissism within the context of non-monogamous relationships and consensual non-monogamous relationships. There's plenty of information out there about the role that narcissism can have within a monogamous context. But I think a lot of folks come into non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, thinking that everything's going to be different. But still within the context of this world, narcissism can penetrate healthy consensual non-monogamy relationships and can have a pretty lasting and damaging effect. Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's just have a caveat and just say the obvious that narcissism can show up in monogamous relationships, non-monogamous relationships, where you work, you know, narcissism is everywhere. Right. And there's a lot of people that identify as non-monogamous that are lovely people, you know, very open-minded, creative thinkers. But with that said, you know, narcissists are very drawn to non-monogamy. Why would that be? Because, you know, non-monogamy can provide a narcissistic fuel. Mm -hmm. Um, What I've noticed with narcissists is I don't believe that they experience uh, love in the way that we do um, Mm -hmm. or the the way other people do. Um, You know, love is like our sunshine and our water and our soil. And so I feel like they end up needing another fuel source since they don't experience love in the same way. And that fuel source can show up in different ways within non-monogamy. It can show up um, with the potential for a lot of gorgeous lovers and attention and, you know, uh, sexual experiences. Mm -hmm. So once they realize the gold mine that they have hit, and -hmm. usually it is a plentiful gold mine because usually a lot of times narcissists narcissists can be very charming so that they oftentimes do very well within non-monogamy, you know, then they are looking for that perfect partner uh, that they can couple up with and kind of be like almost like a power couple, so to speak, uh, within non-monogamous circles. Mm. Yes. So when you think about 
non-monogamous circles and the ways that narcissists can infiltrate them. You had some curious language that you used in a blog that I think you're working on right now. You called them overtakers. So can you explain a little bit about how somebody who might be an overtaker might find themselves really kind of showing up in these dynamics? So yes, absolutely. One thing I'll, I'll say, the reason I use that rather than narcissist is because if you look at the symptoms of narcissism, mm-hmm. if someone is diagnosable as narcissism, they might have some of the lighter, more benign uh, characteristics. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about an overtaker, I'm specifically talking about the following characteristics that are, you know, that you can see in the DSM under narcissism, um, like oppressive manipulation, entitlement, mm-hmm. a demand for admiration, and a lack of empathy. I'm talking about that little bundle. And so, yeah. And so someone that has that bundle may or may not be diagnosable with narcissism, but Mm -hmm. most likely is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so those characteristics really speak to a one directional relationship, right? Which whether people are in a monogamous or a non-monogamous relationship, ideally we want to look at a two or multiple person system where everybody's needs are considered equal and there's mutuality established at the core and, and everyone maintains that. But an overtaker, if I'm hearing you right, is somebody who maybe prioritizes everything coming into whatever their needs might be and filling their bucket without as much attunement to that reciprocity. Yeah. That's usually what unfolds eventually when they first find their person. um, A lot of times there's the quintessential love bombing and, and saying what that person wants to hear and propping them up on a pedestal and all of that. So it can seem Amazing. And also they usually paint themselves as the ideal adventure buddy within non-monogamy. So they seem golden at first and they usually will choose what I call an overtaker. Again, I don't tend to use the word codependent for various reasons. I think not all, but a lot of language about codependency doesn't say, oh, by the way, um, a lot of your behavior, if you're a codependent, may be um, due to internalized misogyny that has been uh, cultivated in our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it does a lot of, so that's why I use the term overtaker because it's, you mean um, over, yeah, overgiver. I use the term overgiver because it, it usually has certain characteristics that I like to stress. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I feel like a lot of codependent literature doesn't encapsulate um, these factors enough um, with the over. So when you think about an overtaker, they have a tendency to want a partner that they can manipulate. Mm-hmm. And so you might think upon hearing this, oh, well, they're going to choose this kind of gullible partner that's naive and weak. But if you think about if you think about somebody that's an overtaker, it's a bit of a predator. If you think about a predator in the wild, if the, if that predator has the option of either taking down a field mouse or a big cat mm-hmm. that's injured, mm-hmm. which is it going to take down? It's probably going to take down the big cat because it can feed off of the big cat much longer. So, you know, a lot of times you will see, uh, you know, overtakers choosing actually pretty powerful partners, but that are just the type that uh, identify as, as a caregiver, someone that's giving and, and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, I, I love that you're bringing this up, right? Because I do think that so many folks have this idea that people who get manipulated into these kinds of relationship dynamics are somehow submissive in their nature or sub, subservient or deferent, and they're really not. And the strategies of some predators might be to go after the weakest link because it's an easier catch, but that's not the case with folks like this. They actually derive so much more um, psychological joy and benefit from conquering the more difficult get, right? So they are going to go after somebody who is seemingly at the top of their game and who has a lot of outward facing energy, power, and social currency, because that is where they draw a lot of their fuel. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so, you know, when you think about this dynamic, um, within non-monogamy, they, they go in and they're going to all the parties, like say if they're a, a swinger, they're going into all the parties, or if they're choosing a lover on the side, they're going on a date and bringing this person in. And it seems so wonderful, mm-hmm. but as soon as the over giver starts to set some kind of boundary, mm-hmm. that's when it starts to get ugly, especially when that specifically if the boundary gets in the way of what the overtaker wants. What's an example of that that you can think of? Um, You know, uh, let's see, just saying that they want to go a little bit slower Mm. or saying that they don't want to take in a particular lover because they think that that particular lover um, is, um, how should I say, a a manipulative, harmful person or, or... something it doesn't even matter just in some way they are asserting some kind of boundary for their own self-care needs but that self-care need gets in the way of what the overtaker wants sometimes an overtaker can lie dormant for a long time if the overgiver is simply ask asking for things that don't impact the overtaker but as soon as it's getting in a way of them having a new lover or going to that play party or something like that um that's when the overtaker will really start to either gaslight, accuse the overgiver of being selfish, mm-hmm. controlling, etc. Now the reason that's so effective mm-hmm. is that within non-monogamy, I would say people operate from what you might call a sixth love language, which could be called carefree fun, freedom, and adventure. So um, the la- if you want to make a non-monogamous person happy, give them a lot of freedom. If you want to piss them off, make them feel controlled. And that can flip with the overgiver. Like they want to see themselves, their own character as someone that get, you know, that doesn't get in the way of freedom. Mm-hmm. And so they will rather be a lamb for the slaughter and not have any kind of self-care boundaries. A lot of times then assert a boundary that might make them be seen as controlling or a mm-hmm. nag or bad at poly or any of those things. Right. Well, that feels so important, especially when we think about some of the other systemic ideologies at play in our culture and how that might already influence people to be sensitive to the idea that they are somehow a nag or being selfish or being somehow too much in their needs. Yeah. You know, if you think about it from a sociological level, Mm -hmm. I think overtakers, not always, but definitely if someone has been nurtured to be hyper-privileged, it's Mm -hmm. easy to 
step into that overtaker role. Sure. If you are, because you're like a gender that faces discrimination, a racial group that faces discrimination, you can easily be pushed or groomed into being an overgiver mm-hmm. for many reasons, you know, to survive, but also because it might be cultural norms, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, why do you think the overgiver has such a difficult time asserting themselves and setting limits? You know, well, part of it is exactly what I, I was saying about that they don't want to be seen mm-hmm. as bad at poly or 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 nag or any of those things. Um, I think sometimes they may have internalized misogyny. Mm. Um, I think a lot of times if they've been with the overtaker for quite some time, they're slowly being worn down. Yes. Um, and a lot of times within non-monogamy, the overtaker will start to either isolate. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll try and be friends with anyone that the overgiver is friends with. Mm-hmm. So they don't have any kind of resources. They'll try and take on any outside friend as a lover, what have you. So the, the, the overgiver doesn't have any safe place to say, I think something might be wrong in my relationship. Right. I mean, taking control of their social network is something that overtakers or folks with uh, high degrees of narcissism will do in many relationships, non-monogamous or monogamous, to try and maintain that control over whatever's being talked about in those social groups or to try and you know hold on to some opportunity to keep the um, the positive impression that they're trying so hard to instill of themselves with other people. Yeah. Um, I've had clients where, you know, within LA, non-monogamy is massive, but it also <laughs> has a feeling of being small at the same time. And so in my practice, a lot of times I've had, um, you know, pretty famous sex educators or sex therapists. I've had pretty well-known party organizers, both in the non-monogamous and kink scene in my practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people that, you know, I've had clients where they're partnered up with somebody that within the non-monogamous scene are very loved and known for their parties, but behind closed doors, they're pretty emotionally abusive to their partner, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and um, you would just never know. So, you know, if, if you want to think about how to cope or how to like pull out of a situation like this, one of the main things is, you know, making sure that you have a, a friend that is consensually non-monogamous. And as far as their identity goes, that you can talk to that you have on the side that is not connected to your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, Does it have to be a friend or can it also be a therapist who is CNM affirming? Yeah, I think both would be ideal. I think when you have um, a overtaker that has been wearing you down, it's important to have as as many resources that are not linked up to that person as possible. To because it's it's like being being it's like your little ship is being pulled into a black hole. It's really hard to back the ship up, and so as many resources as you can get um, is important. I mean, there's been times in my journey where I was paired up with a narcissist and like, when I started to realize what was going on slowly over, you know, several years, honestly, I started to build up friends that were not connected to him. I started to like, 
create this separate life. I started to just build my whole life separate and slowly pull out. Mm-hmm. I remember he, he, he even said to me, he said, I can see what you're doing <laughs> at one point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, at that point I was also building up my career and, mm-hmm. you know, it was, he couldn't really get in the way of that, you know? Well, so. maybe one thing for folks listening, if they're considering um, whether or not there's some resonance here for them and what we're talking about, if you're going to be engaging in any kind of non-monogamous relationship, it's so important to maybe establish some of those friendships first and keep a lot of your, um, keep a lot of your conversations about it, maybe separate from with your partner at times so that you can really have a sounding board that is a little bit more objective for you to get some feedback. And then you can bring many questions and thoughts and fears and concerns back to your partner. Yeah, I always encourage when uh, basically in my office, regardless of whether there's a whole poly family going on at home or what, whatever, I'm usually talking to an individual or a couple. And Mm -hmm. so if I'm talking to two people, I'll always encourage them to have their shared friends Mm -hmm. and then their separate friends so that if they get into a fight or what have you, they have separate people that they can talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of times if they share all their friends, then you know, it it can compromise friendships, all kinds of different things. So, yeah. So that's really important. Um, So how does the overtakers manipulation usually show up? What would be some other indicators that an overgiver could recognize? Well, you know, let's, let's face it. So one thing I want to say is there's a lot of people within non-monogamy that want to do a lot of things and Mm -hmm. they're, you know, wanting to have a lot of beautiful lovers and they're excited and they're kind of like Tigger all excited. So I'm not (laughs) saying that anybody who's excited and wants a lot of lovers within non-monogamy is this type of person, you know, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's this combination of someone who is um, really pushing through boundaries Mm-hmm. And wearing down the overgiver, mm-hmm. um, gaslighting, mm-hmm. twisting things, mm-hmm. a lot of times make, you know, hitting those buttons mm-hmm. that are sensitive for the overgiver, like saying you're being controlling, which is the opposite of freedom or, or saying you're, you're trying to take my freedom away. You know, all these things that are hot buttons, you know, I, I thought you were good at poly, you know, that you wanted to be polyamorous, but obviously, you know, it, you don't truly want to do this, like hitting those hot buttons mm-hmm. that are trigger points for most non-monogamous people. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause they just, it's not, it's not like it's, it's shaming. So it's not saying you did something bad. It's saying you are bad. Right. Right. And it, it can make someone crumble. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear like questioning their worthiness, questioning their commitment to this lifestyle, questioning their motives. And I wonder, does, um, do sexual double standards play a role in this? Is there ever any, um, you know, within non-monogamy, it can run the gamut. Ideally non-monogamy should be very egalitarian where everybody gets to have a voice and, and, um, everybody gets to stay, say what they need and all of that sort of thing. Um, with this kind of dynamic, a lot of times, the overtaker is asking for way more. And also concurrently when the overgiver is asking for what they want, the yeah. overtaker is, is like shutting them down and like slut shaming them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, making them feel guilty, accusing them of being selfish, that sort of thing. 
concurrent with pushing through boundaries and asking for way more than, you know, and there is this huge imbalance in this dynamic. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of projection, right? That they accuse the overgiver of being selfish and of taking more than is their fair share from the dynamic, but that's in fact what they're doing. Right, right, right. And there's just a lot of, can I cuss on this? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of mind fuckery. So, and if you don't have anyone to talk to that is kind of your person and the main person in your ear is this overtaker, you know, again, it's like you start to just not be able to see straight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true in every abusive relationship. Right. Right. You know, it's just uh, in this, in this abusive relationship, there's just this extra piece of the narcissistic fuel that's being, you know, that's at play. And, um, and, and, and also, you know, specifically a lot of times non-monogamy has to do with sexuality. So if you're wearing someone's boundaries down and sometimes getting them to do things uh, that they, that's not a true yes, then over time it can land as if you've been sexually abused, if you've been with an overtaker for too long within non-monogamy, you know. I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, the, the grooming that can happen in an abusive relationship is so subtle. And I mean, it's like a frog in hot water, right? They don't realize it until they're boiling. And when people find themselves in those dynamics, they often will feel so much shame and so much regret and have a difficult time extrapolating themselves from the relationship because they're so isolated or because they don't want to feel like it could be true. And it's so important to, to, I think, remember the ways that in non-monogamous relationships, how there's so much that can be levied against the overgiver in terms of making them feel jealous perhaps when they don't need to, or creating doubt in the security of the, the primary partner relationship. I just think it's, it's so key to look at how sometimes there can be an illusion of safety when we're talking about consensual or ethical non-monogamy, because there is an expectation that everything is transparent and on the table. And that's different from how folks with high degrees of narcissism and monogamous relationships will act out in non-monogamous ways, but unethically and not transparently. So there's sometimes an even more insidious aspect to non-monogamous relationships because people think, well, we're all here. We all came to this table with the same goals, the same motives and the same agreements, but that's not always true. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think a lot of times, you know, people that are predatory are drawn to environments that are supposed to be safe. You know, we're, we're told a church is supposed to be safe. Right. And then a lot of predators are drawn there or, you know, I hate to say like a preschool or whatever. I hate to, you know, for a lot of people, they're going to bristle when I compare non-monogamy to a church or some of these other things. But for people that are non-monogamous, they often report feeling light years safer in non-monogamous parties Mm -hmm. than they do at your local bar. Um, because there's there's all these social norms of uh, uh, about consent and uh, making sure that your yes is a true yes and and that sort of thing, um, you know uh, that it can be really jarring when something happens that doesn't feel consensual or what have you. But again, with the overtaker, it's not this abrupt thing. It's a so the slow conditioning that happens over time. 
that started out feeling so glorious. Like, you know, oftentimes you feel like you found this golden adventure buddy to travel non-monogamy with, and then slowly it shifts. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What are some of the questions um, that you get from people who are recognizing that they've been in this dynamic? Well, a lot of times if usually I'm talking to the overgiver because the overtaker, when the overtaker comes into my office, it's usually because they think that they can get me to be partners with them in manipulating their, their partner. And when they find out that that's not true, which is usually within a session, because as soon as I recognize it, which I can recognize it quickly, I'm usually saying a whole bunch of stuff as fast as I can within 50 minutes, because I know they're not going to come back, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, that might help the overgiver. Um, you know, so if I'm just talking to the overgiver, um, you know, say she, if this is an individual client, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times what they will say to me is they think that they, they will say, am I just as sick mm-hmm. as the, you know, as the overtaker, as the narcissist? Um, I've always, you know, they'll say within codependent relationships, I've always heard that the person that is the overgiver is just as sick as the person in the overtaker role. And all and I will quickly say to them, no, that is not true. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of times the reason the overgiver is in this position, I'll say, you know, if it's a woman, I'll say, just keep in mind, you've been enculturated to mm-hmm. overgive since you were little. Like for right. women that are older, you know, all you have to do is look at Greece and mm-hmm. look at Olivia Newton John and John Travolta's characters. John Travolta's character was pretty damn narcissistic. He was actually pretty damn toxic, although he's very yeah. lovable in a lot of ways. Like there's, uh, or if you, narcissist. <laughs> yeah, or if you watch the show Lucifer, mm-hmm. you know, the, the cop that is the love interest, she's very strong woman, but that whole dynamic is a quintessential example of a narcissist mm-hmm. that is wearing down and puppeteering you know, an overgiver. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just everywhere all day long. And so as soon as the overgiver realizes that I've seen them change within weeks, I've wow. seen them get out of toxic relationships and have a new partner that is way kinder within months. The, 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 as soon as I start to help them see what has always been there, mm-hmm. it's like coming out of the matrix. I know that's a trait a trite example, but it really is kind of like that. It's like this wakening up. And as soon as they see everything, sometimes they change their life. Pretty, yeah. Pretty drastic. rapid fire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are some of the things that make it difficult for them to make changes in your opinion? Um, things like if they are very mired in the relationship, they have children, maybe they're in a position where they don't have as much money. Um, maybe they're completely worn down. A, a big one is self-blame and, and, um, you know, a lot of times someone who's an overgiver, they, um, will make excuses for the overtaker. Like, cause a lot of times the overtaker may not only have narcissism, but maybe they have a huge trauma history that's for real, or, you know, some very, some other things that make the overgiver who already has a big heart and is already super empathetic, um, feel for that person. Yeah. yeah. And to the extent they they have more compassion for the overtaker than they do themselves. And a lot of times another thing since a lot of times the overgiver is a strong person or a healer, mm-hmm. they'll say to me, "Well, I I can take it. I can handle it." Right. Right. And and I'll say to them, "So how did you learn that, you know, you being you is is about um just 
how much you can take, how much abuse you can take as some kind of badge of honor. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard that so many times too in different iterations. You know, the only time that they may have a chance to learn this is through me because I have this insight, right? So I'm somehow in in service of them if I stay. And I think that's a really nasty trap that we are that people find themselves in and that we as a society are really good at reinforcing, right? With language like ride or die and and especially with women, giving them that encouragement that this is a part of how it is to be a woman, but it's not. Yeah. I was talking to Destin Garrick, who Mm -hmm. works with men and helps men shift to not only being benevolent men, but men that have a great sex life and all the things. And I was talking to him privately and I said, have you ever been able to shift like a, a guy who's that quintessential uh, you know, like he he's he's white, he's tall, he's handsome, he's rich, super privileged, super narcissistic. Like, have you ever been able to change that guy? And he said, Yeah. Ooh. And and I said, How how are you pulling that one off? And he said, Well, usually they've had a lot of losses mm-hmm. to the extent where they the common denominator is them, and mm-hmm. they're finally having that wake up call that they need to make some changes in their life in order to have a better life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pain is a motivator for everyone. So if it if it is enough of a sounding board for folks who are in those overtaker roles, one day they might be like, wow, uh, I am actually getting in my own way here in getting the, the, the things and the connections that I want. Yeah. And I think it's a call of action to those of us who are over givers is that when we set that boundary with mm-hmm. someone who is wearing us down, you're not only doing that a, a service to yourself, but to everybody that will come after you, because, you know, like if all the overgivers of the world started <laughs> to set boundaries and take care of themselves, then, then that's part of a big piece of the puzzle that will make things shift. Of course, the law of natural consequences will take over. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah great. Any last thoughts or um, words of wisdom for people listening today on this topic? Well, I, I I think one thing that's really important, along with having a, a friend that, that's um, consensually non-monogamous or a therapist, as you said, that is sex positive and and uh, aware of non-monogamy and uh, and understands that, is to make sure that you are grounded in your body um, and connected to your full compass, which I will call that your your intellectual, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, working in tandem from a grounded, centered place. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's Osho that said your uh, mind is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, within non-monogamy, a lot of non-monogamous leaders have focused on just using your intellect mm-hmm. to power through things. But what ends up happening over time is that serves the narcissist, that serves the overtaker, because the overtaker will say, just be logical. And the per- and the overgiver will push down their emotions and their body sensations and go, oh, yes, I, I should logically do X, Y, and Z. And so it's just, if you're over-relying on your intellect or over-relying on one part of the puzzle... Oh then in either case, the narcissist can take advantage of that. And so by being connected to your full compass, it's important. And, you know, and when I say that the reason your emotions can also, if you're just relying on your emotions, the narcissist will push you to get dysregulated and then again, puppeteer you that way. 
Right, right. So really essential to try to stay connected to all of the wisdom that lives within your consciousness, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, its sensations, your behaviors, and try to really stay aware of when anything's starting to get wobbly in one of those spheres. And that's a good indicator that there's something that might need a second look in the relationship. Yeah. If I were to just give you a quick example of the difference between the two, mm-hmm. you know, like imagine Brian says to Jasmine, uh, how do you feel about me sleeping with Alex? Mm-hmm. And in, in the first example, she just checks in with her thoughts and she thinks, well, Alex has always been kind to both of us. And we've known Alex for five years. And logically it, it seems, you know, so, you know, it seems uh, like a good idea, you know, mm-hmm. and so and then he goes and spends the night with Alex, comes back and Jasmine is just pissed and she doesn't know why. If we do a redo and this time he asks Jasmine, but she checks in with her body. She notices a knife drop in her gut mm-hmm. and she doesn't know what it means, but she says, you know, I need some time. And he says, sure. She goes off. She gets in touch with that knife drop. She notices some sadness and heartbreak emotionally. And then she sits with both of those, goes up to the mind last. Mm. And the the thoughts are, oh, our anniversary is coming up. Oh, you've never spent the night before. And at that point, Jasmine is able to make an ask. And then the three of them discuss and come up with a plan that Mm. better suits all three. And then when he comes back from seeing Alex, Jasmine is in a much better headspace. Mm. Now, what would that look like if she only sourced her emotions and he tried to dysregulate her? If she wasn't grounded and she's just in her emotions and he asks, and let's say that he is more of an overtaker narcissist and he sees that she's starting to get dysregulated, mm-hmm. you know, um, and she doesn't know how to ground herself. She doesn't have any grounding skills and he starts pushing, mm. you know, why are you getting so upset? What's going on with you? you know, obviously you're not good at non-monogamy. Why are we even doing this? Now she's dysregulating further her prefrontal cortex that helps her negotiate between reason and emotion is starting to get wonky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, her, her heart is beating. She's starting to feel panicked uh, now. She has some brain fog. She can't articulate her thoughts. He's coming at her harder. And then maybe she, you know, different things can happen, but one outcome is she might just want the uncomfortable moment to go away mm-hmm. and just say, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just, I want to be good at polyamory. Yeah, go. I don't want to get in the way. Yeah, go ahead and see Alex. And then later on, she goes into a shame spiral. He sees it the next day when he comes back and he's like, What's wrong with you? You know? And and again, she just kind of collapses into, Well, I want to be good at polyam. I want to be good at I'm I'm sorry, I'm just having feelings. I'm just bad at this. Please forgive me. Yeah. Takes on so much responsibility for the rupture in the relationship. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that this is why it's so important within non-monogamy to choose emotionally intelligent, kind, compassionate, conscious, mm-hmm. non-reactive partners. So true. So important. Well, thank you so much. This was incredibly informative. Um, what are your social media handles so that folks listening can follow you? The easiest is um, Open Deeply with Kate Lurie. That's TikTok and Instagram. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my, let's see, my website is katelarie.com. Mm-hmm. You can also find me on Facebook or Twitter. If you just put in Katelarie, I'll pop up. It's an unusual enough name. And the last name is L-O-R-E-E. 
Wonderful. Thank you. And I'll put all of that in our show notes, along with a link to Kate's book, uh, Open Deeply. Thank you again, Kate. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. Intimacy starts with being curious. At the end of each episode, I'll be answering your questions. I love interacting with all of you. So please keep the questions coming via TikTok, Instagram, and our website, or you can email questions at modernintimacy.com. I'll include your name attached to the question unless you ask me not to. So tune in to hear if your questions get answered here or on our social media pages. Okay, let's get curious together. All right, our next question comes from Linda W. Linda asks, I feel shy about initiating sex. Any advice? Oh my gosh, love this question. So no one needs to be a, a sexual siren. But if you're really wanting to initiate sex and there's something getting in the way, I might invite you to get a little bit curious about what fears could be attached to that. If you're feeling insecure about your body or about something related to being sexual, that's a great opportunity to talk with a sex therapist or talk with a trusted friend or better yet with the partner you want to have sex with to get a sense of what they like and bridge that gap. If you're feeling shy about initiating sex because you feel like it's wrong, that's a totally different story. A lot of women are told that sex is something they should wait for a partner to initiate. And and they're really conditioned to not ask for what they want. I might be curious about whether or not you feel you have permission to be sexual and permission to ask for what you want. And if that's the hiccup, then I would really encourage you to think about stepping into your power And again, speaking with a therapist or a trusted friend about what it's like to really say yes enthusiastically to the things that you want in life, sex included. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.